You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP Santa Cruz. Welcome to episode 146 with my guest Tess Gerritsen. Check out her new novel co-written with Gary Braver called Choose Me. And they're doing an event together at the Portland, Maine Public Library on July 15th. Go to portlandlibrary.com to sign up for the virtual event wherever you are on the earth. That will be at 7 p.m. East Coast time on July 15th at the Portland Library in Maine. Go to portlandlibrary.com. And hey, would you like to do, would you like to do more library via Zoom? Because I'm teaching my creative writing workshop on July 14th through the Los Angeles Public Library at 6 p.m. Pacific. Go to lapl.org to register. That's lapl.org to register for the online workshop July 14th. That's for creative writing, 6 p.m. And that'll also be via Zoom. And now, everything you've ever wanted to know about writing and the human condition. Hi, I'm Tess Gerritsen, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Tess Gerritsen. She's the co-author of Choose Me with Gary Braver. Tess, how are you? I'm great tonight. Thank you. Yeah, It's tonight because you're on the East Coast, right? Oh, yeah. oh, are you on the West Coast? I did not. Yes, it is the East Coast and it is time for a cocktail. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're cocktailing. Um, and oh, you, I just saw you have events coming out next week when this airs and all, all kind of in the New England area. Yeah, it's everything is Zoom, unfortunately. I mean, I, I love the days where you used to actually go and see people and talk to people. But yes, we have a lot of events. We have, um, we have one uh, with Massachusetts libraries. We have one with Portland, Maine libraries. Um, it's, it's, a busy, it's a busy month. <laughs> Are you in New England? I am. I'm, I live in Maine. Oh, do you? Okay. Do yeah, you, where all the other writers live. <laughs> I know. Do you see now? in portland maine that's like where stephen king lives right well he lives in bangor bangor Do, ha, yeah. have you ever seen him bopping around though is he like a sight to see in the area i haven't seen him in the wild i have met him at you know at, at writers events and things and we we've had we played together once for one of his rock bottom remainders concerts i was i was just a guest i was just a guest musician i'm not a regular but it was fun what do you play i played the fiddle really yeah, if you can figure out how the fiddle goes into a rock band, tells me, tell me, because I, I couldn't, I didn't know what I was doing there. Oh, okay, I will. <laughs> There's, have you heard of this band called the Dirty Three out of Australia? No. So the, the, the main guy in the Dirty Three is Warren Ellis, and he now plays with Nick Cave. He's been playing with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds since the 90s. And uh-huh. he actually brings a fiddle with his classical training into a rock environment. That's great. I mean, what I would do is because they play music that's been recorded, you know, by famous people, I would listen to those those tunes and I would generally just sort of pick up the saxophone part with my fiddle. That's what I was doing. I was, you know, I'm not a rock musician, but it was it was fun wearing a skimpy outfit and getting up on stage and pretending you're, you know, a rock star <laughs> isn't it and that's that's the thing i feel like as a writer i want to be a rock star and i know and, and i also talk to a lot i have musician friends as well and my musician friends want to be writers 
No, I thought musicians are so happy being musicians that they wouldn't want to be anything else. It's, I don't know. I, it, I guess it depends who it is. If it's somebody that's really into reading books and wishes they could write. Yeah. And then they're like, all I know how to do is create beautiful music. And I'm like, yeah, don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> do yeah. that. It's good. <laughs> so, okay. That's cool. So you're, so that's, so that kind of makes sense that the book is set in Boston. Yeah, that's, you know, Boston is the nearest big city to me. Um, and I started setting my stuff in Boston when I started writing crime fiction. Because, um, you know, I wrote the Rizzolian Isles series, which is about a homicide detective. And Maine doesn't have enough homicides to, <laughs> to make that realistic, that there would be a big city homicide squad. So I set it in the nearest big city, and that was Boston. Is that the is that the series that also became a TV show? Yes, it is. It is. It ran for seven seasons, based on my book. Yeah, that is fantastic. So, and they shot on Paramount Studios, which is pretty close to here. <laughs> there was nothing shot in Boston, as far as I know, except for the B roll. That was that was it. <laughs> well, that's how most of these things go. The um, but I was in. I was an extra one day on that. I, oh. I was a mugshot on a wall. So they just had me come in for a half hour. I got paid 200 bucks to just get a couple pictures taken of me looking sinister and menacing, yeah. me looking bored. Okay, we need you to look like this. All right, you're clear. Go home. How, I was did, just they, like, how did they rope, rope you into that? How, what happened? How did you get? Well, I've, I actually have done, so I live in LA now. So I've done extra work. So I, oh. I, I started doing extra work so I could just get health insurance from SAG, right? And then all, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh wait, you got to do a lot of extra work to do, to get the health insurance. And I don't care about acting at all. So I care, I'm a writer. I just, so it's just like, so it's been a lot of fun to be around it and then just make a few bucks here and there. And um, yeah, one, one of the, one of the greatest gigs was doing the show that you inspired because it was in and out Paramount lot. Here you go. Boom. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> It was eye-opening to me because I, I got to I got to do a guest role in, in the last season. Oh and wow. It was eye-opening to me how much money goes into making these television shows um, and how much money just gets put out on just you know costumes and little things. So um, yeah, I understand now why TV shows cost so much to produce. And everything's needed too when you see it like when it comes to costuming, when it comes to everything all those departments are so creative and so invested in the story. Usually it, it yeah. makes sense. It is an amazingly talented industry. And when I saw what went into shooting one episode on location, all the different moving parts, I thought we should just turn over our military to Hollywood. They, they, they could, they could choreograph a landing in a, in a you know, in a hostile territory and, and, and have good food as well. Yeah. And that's the important part is how was craft services when you were on set? It was great. It was great. Craft services is an, is an amazing thing. I mean, I, I had to make, um, I mean, my son and I made a horror film together. We were little sort of a little low budget independent film company ourselves. And that was one of the important things was we had to make sure that our craft services was up to snuff. Isn't it? Yeah, because you want everyone to feel, you got to feel good to work. That's right. You had to feel, we had to feel good to work. And we want, we didn't want them to, to dread mealtime. And, and this is the, I know this is not having to do with anything with books, but I just have to tell you that 
we shot on a on a night that was probably 10 degrees, 10 degrees. And so our craft services people had put out this beautiful salad spread. And of course, all this, all the lettuce was frozen solid by the time the cast oh. got to it. So I, I admire every, you know, I admire craft services as well. They, they have a quite a job to do. <laughs> so uh, what, what is this, can we see this horror film? Oh yeah, you can. No, I, I warn you now it's low budget, but it was a lot yeah. of fun. It's called Island Zero. Really? Okay. And it's a feature? Yes. And uh, it's, it was filmed in Maine. It was filmed on an island in Maine. And oh. I wrote it. My, my son directed it. And Wow. Yeah. I'm, I love horror. I grew up on horror as a kid. That was my favorite genre you know, when I was watching television. Um, so it was just sort of natural that when, if I was going to do a narrative movie, it would be horror. Now, the, sometimes, these, sometimes when you write a film, the director doesn't want you on set. So when the director's your son, does he, does he go, we got to keep the writer offset? How, how does that work? I think they were not, they did not like my interference in certain shots. I mean, there were times when I would, I would be watching the shot and I would go, no, 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 you need a different angle. It was like, get out of here, mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's a faux pas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've been a writer on set before and I, I, know the, I know the boundaries. I know never to comment on anything, let everyone do their job. But if there's a writing issue, then I, then I need to sit up and get in. Well, it, it also comes in that I have a long history of having watched horror films all my life. So I know what a shot works. And I don't think the DP was too happy with me saying, no, 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 different angle. You're, you're, you're too far away. We want to get a close-up because you only want to see parts of the monster. You never want to see the whole monster because the whole monster is really not very impressive. Right. And what's, and the beauty of that is the human imagination takes horror to its own level. So if you give that, exactly. if you give someone an opening and you're like, you don't want to know what's behind the door, if you show them what's behind the door. It's not as interesting, but if you let the exactly. human emote. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and I think it's more horrifying when you, when you watch, I don't know how we got onto this topic, but oh, this is what we do. Yeah. <laughs> when you watch somebody die in a horror film, you know what's most horrifying is not seeing the limbs being pulled off. It's watching the face. It's watching the face of the victim and their utter, their their utter terror. That to me is the most horrifying thing. And then then you can you can show the mutilated body later. But I like watching the emotions. That's what draws me to not not just you know movies, but also fiction on the page. The emotions. Yeah. Well, that's what that brings it close to us emotionally, because when we see someone's face in that situation, then we can picture ourselves being in a situation of absolute terror and dying. Whereas if yeah. we just see limbs being taken off, it's just like, oh, that's kind of gross. That's like cutting up a chicken. It's, yeah. Right. And I, I just made chicken last night. I'm fine with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too. My husband's in the kitchen right now making chicken. So <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, uh, how does he make chicken? What's, what's his specialty? Oh, well, we do it the Chinese way, which is, uh, um, it's all about the sauces. That's, you know, ah, okay. Chicken is chicken, but the sauce is what makes it special. Interesting. I like to make a, I like to make a bone broth. So I cook it up in a broth and then I'll eat the chicken and then put it back in there and let it simmer for a really long time. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I never throw away the broth. Yeah. No, the broth is like nutrients. It's so good. That's right. Yeah. You had no idea this was going to be a cooking show. You're no, looking at I, me like I'm crazy. But, you know, I've got to, I have to tell you, I have to say, and I love the fact that we're just going all over the place. I feel like we're in a bar. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> my father was a professional cook. Uh-huh. Yeah, he had a restaurant. So uh, anything to do with cooking, yeah, I'm there. And anything to do with food, I'm happy to talk to you about because this all, it's, it's where I draw a lot of inspiration. Although I, I have to say, I mean, we're supposed to be talking about Choose Me, the book, um, but I don't think food actually came into it. <laughs> yeah. Usually my books have a lot of food in them. <laughs> really? What, where was the restaurant that your dad had? It was in San Diego on West G Street Pier. Huh. It was it was Tom Lai's. Um, it was a family restaurant. It was um, it was Chinese seafood, so okay. I mean, it's, that's kind of like a specialty thing. But um, all I remember about the restaurant business is I never saw him. He was so busy all the time. The restaurant and the film industry are two of those businesses where you just won't if if you're uh, if you're married to someone who's a director or whatever on a TV show, yeah. you won't see him. If, if, no. the, if someone's a chef, you're not going to see him. It really takes it's a lot of time. Right, right. And they were open. They were open six days a week um, for lunch and dinner. So yeah. you get an idea. And if, because it's seafood, you have to get up before dawn to go down to buy the fish because you want it to be fresh that day. And that's why we become writers. That, that, that's why I would never go into the restaurant. <laughs> but that's why when I go into a restaurant, I so appreciate everything that goes into the meal that's put yeah. in front of yeah, because it's I, I I used to work in restaurants. It's not a uh, it's not an easy gig, uh, especially no. especially when you're a waiter trying to like can you know keep everything together and you know, oh yeah yeah and you have one bad table at night and then the, it, your whole night is ruined. Where it's just like wait a second, you had twenty great tables and one bad table, and I don't know why we focus on the bad. Why do we focus on the one bad when there's so oh much my beauty? God. This is just like reviews. You can have 19 great yeah. reviews and one bad review. And, and 20 years later, you remember the bad review. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> Why do we do that? I don't know. I, maybe basically we always feel like we're trying to get respect and everybody's disrespecting us. But we don't. You know, we know. I think the thing about writers, at least the ones I know, we never believe the praise, but we always take to heart the criticism. That's interesting. Cause sometimes I feel like if I get a good review, I'm like, I, I think, Oh, you guys didn't read into it deep enough. You, yeah. you, 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad stuff you missed in there. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. You, yeah. You put that whip away. Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I think it's such a human condition thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you, how, how many books have you, you've written a ton of books, like, hundreds of millions of 20s <laughs> i've written 30 books 30 books yes 30 is this books. is this number 30 um no the next book that i just finished is number 30 okay so we're on 29 what is it like what what is it like to start book 29 do you, does it feel does it do you sit at the time when you have book 29 do you go oh this is gonna be easy never never Are you really no it every book is so difficult and and these Although I have to say every book that I start, I always think, am I gonna be able to finish this? How, do I remember how I did it the last time? Uh, it's because every book is its own world and you are, you're just starting afresh with every single story. Now, when I write a series book like Rizzoli and Isles, of course, I already know most of the characters, uh, but there are always, of course, a few key characters you don't know that you have to create from scratch. Um, but something like Choose Me was a book where everybody was new, every character was new, we had to create them from scratch. 
and we had to create really complex characters who were not very likable, but we had to turn them into heroes. And that was the challenge in the story. And that, I feel like the, I feel like that's the fun part where you can just say, it's almost like being a tech uh, on a computer where it's just like, okay, we got to figure out how to make this computer work better. Yeah. So let's get into the technical of how to create a better story with these characters and move them around and wait, what can we do that can just make that, you know? Oh, well, you, you know, you're, you're approaching it in a much more intellectual way than, than I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, and it's probably wrong. That's probably why I only have one book out. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, part of it, I think, is is maybe the difference between men and women. I don't. I hate to be sexist and say that, but oh, yeah, I really, yeah. I really go by the seat of my pants. Well, I want, well, I won't say the seat of my pants. I say by my gut. I go uh -huh. by what do I feel animates this particular character. Now, Choose Me was an interesting project because it's it's co-written with a male. And it started off with this idea of um, the Me Too movement and illicit affairs and men who do wrong and how would men and women see the same situation differently? Um, okay, so there's, there's an affair between a professor and his student, which is a no-no, of course, um, and it goes very badly wrong and he's married. So he's, he's betrayed two different things. Um, now, how would the students see that affair and how would the professor see that affair and how would the difference in those play up what is different about men versus women? So that was, that was, how, that was the genesis of the whole thing. My co-writer is a man. He wrote the male point of view. I wrote the female points of view. There are two women in the story. Um, and we just wanted to see how we would, how we would approach this, this kind of situation of, of um, you know, this illicit affair in different ways. Um, anyway, that's, that's, that's how the whole project got started. And it was both storytelling and also an education for us both, I think. Yeah, that's like, um, what do you, did you, do you remember any surprises that Gary, um, where you're just like, I didn't know a man would think like that. Oh God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, women, we have this idealized version of how men look at us. All right. We think and this comes from romance novels, right? We that men fall in love with our wit and our intelligence and our brilliance and our charm. And it turns, it turns out that men are just looking down at our cleavage. That is- What? I don't agree. Really? <laughs> the one in a billion who doesn't. But, but that was when Gary would write his, his, um, his chapters about professor, um, uh, the professor meeting his beautiful, intelligent, creative student for the first time, um, his first draft was that he notices, you know, her figure. He notices- Well, that there, that's true though. There, there's a lot of truth to that. All the, right. The, the first notice is, is we are drawn. It's, a, it's physical, right? I mean, yeah, also, yeah. I understand that. But yeah. when Taryn looks at him, the first thing she notices is his eyes. They're kind. He looks tired. He looks like he's a nice man. That's not what he's seeing when he looks at her. So when I would get these chapters back from Gary, I said, I'm sure, well, first of all, I asked my husband, I said, is this really the way men think? And he goes, yeah, that's really the way men think. So I, you know, <laughs> and you're like, disappointment, but, disappointment, disappointment. Like, you didn't love me for my brilliance. But, <laughs> <laughs> so so um, I, I said to Gary, this may be true. This may be realistic that men think of women, they go down to their cleavage, but most of our readers are going to be women and they will not like this male character if that's the way he is. 
we he can't be too realistic you know we he has to be more like maybe um a kind of a cross between a man and a woman and he has to be paying more attention to Taryn's brilliance um, because that's how we want to be thought of. So that was one thing I learned about how men look at women. And I think that Gary learned a lot because I was, I was giving him these, these criticisms. He said, really, this is gonna offend them? I said, yeah, it's gonna offend us. Uh, so we learned a lot from each other, um, but we also were able to, I think maybe, uh, I, refine the novel in a way that it makes it more acceptable to the female reader and yet still keeps the spirit of the story alive, which is a man, he's basically a good man. This, this character, um, uh, Jack, is a, is a good man. He's a, he is a professor, he is married, his marriage is going a little stale, but he still loves his wife. And we want to see him make a bad mistake. And the mistake is what completely just almost destroys him. Um, and the challenge that Gary Braver had, and he did, and he met, and he did a great job, was making this man who had done a terrible thing likable. How do you make a character who is a hero, who, who commits, you know, a sin, how do you make him likable? And, and Gary managed to do that. And what's the answer? The answer is guilt. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I like that. The answer is, is oh, he has to feel terrible about what he did. He has to feel guilty every time he looks at his wife. He has to be desperate to save his marriage. And I think that turns him into an everyman. It makes him somebody that a lot, you know, men, most men can identify with. Because, and, or most humans, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We all do things that we wish we hadn't done. And sometimes we try to cover up for it. And sometimes we see our lives unraveling because of it. And this is what Jack Dorian in the story has to deal with. He's unraveling. What, how far will he go to save everything that he loves? Will he, will he commit murder? And that is a question that is going to be hanging over the story until the end. It's, um, yeah, I like, I like that. It's so interesting how, yeah, you know, especially with the male, the male attraction, we're, we're built so weird. Men, men are built to just like, we're going to have sex with everybody. Right. We're going to have as many babies as we can. That's, yeah. that's, that's a biological it, imperative. Right. And it, and it sucks. It's not easy. Cause it, cause it, it, when you're, when you're like, when you're, especially when you're a teenager and you're walking around and you're just like going, <gasps> you know, everything's ping pong, you know? I, know, right? I know what you're talking about. I know, but it's an exhausting, it's, it is exhausting and it's embarrassing. And yeah. you can't wear tight pants. You cannot wear tight pants as a teenager. Right. So, yeah. um, but but that's the difference between men and women. Now, you know, I was I of course I was taking the point of, of the two females in this story. One of them being the young college student Taryn, and she was so fascinating to write because she's a complex, not necessarily likable young woman. Um, she it's it's not just an affair. There's a there's semi seduction going on here. She's needy. She's obsessive. She's been abandoned by every man in her life. And here is this, this handsome, you know, this professor who looks like he's going to be her savior. So of course she falls deeply in love with him. And when he tries to pull out of this affair, she's not going to let it happen. Um, and that's, that's where the themes that come into the story really become, I think, to me, alive. Uh, she's taking his class. It's called Star-Crossed Lovers. And it's looking at literary um, couples through the ages, going all the way back to Medea, um, and then looking at Aeneas to where 
a lot of people don't know this, but the founder of Rome was not necessarily Remus and Romulus. It was this, this hero called Aeneas who was a Trojan hero. And on his journey, fleeing Troy to Rome, which he is going to found eventually, he falls in love with Queen Dido. Um, she, uh, she is abandoned. He abandons her after she's given her heart to him. And in despair, she commits suicide on her funeral pyre. And as her body is being consumed by the flames, Aeneas is sailing away to glory. He can see his, ex, his, his lover's body being consumed and he does not turn back. He just moves on, he moves on. And um, so these are the stories that are, that are in this fictional class called, uh, tro uh, called uh, Star-Crossed Lovers. And our, our character, Taryn, the young student who is taking this class starts to identify with these women from fiction identifies with Dido who is abandoned, identifies with Medea who takes her revenge. Um, and that's, I think it's that literary aspect that plays through the story that Taryn can't figure out who is she. Is she Dido who commits suicide and gives up or is she Medea who takes revenge? Um, so I, I think that was part of the fun of, of writing this story because I, I love Greek mythology and here we got, we got to bring it into the story as a possible role model for our semi-crazy character, Taryn. So it, it's interesting, you had to create a fictional class, like a fictional workshop. Did you kind yeah, of, yeah, did, yeah. You, did you approach it like you were putting your, a syllabus together and such? Exactly, for... exactly. And, I, and you know, cause we were, we were talking about what kind of a class is this professor gonna be teaching that has, that draws a student into it. Um, and I had just finished reading the Aeneid uh, maybe a year or two before and was still psychologically damaged by the, the chapter about Queen Dido uh, killing herself on her funeral pyre. And I said, what about, let's do star-crossed lovers. Let's talk about lovers who have had tragic ends. Um, and, and Gary, of course, because he is an English professor, knew all these other stories. He brought in, you know, he, he brought in all these um, um, other star-crossed lovers and that became the, the fictional course. And I told Gary later, I said, this is a course that a lot of college students would like to take. You should just create it and teach it. That, well, and I was just thinking what, what an amazing workshop it would be if you and Gary actually taught this course. Um, <laughs> I, I would take it in a second. I know, and you would learn your classics as well. Yeah, what a, yeah, that's, uh, this course needs to be made. If, if someone, now how do, they attribute, how do they attribute it to you when someone, ta when someone creates this course? Oh, they're going to have to say um, with credit to Tess Garrison and Gary Braver. Yeah. They're just going to have to say that. Yeah. And they'll have to assign the book for the course as well, because right, right. yeah, that's, that's just a given. So, <laughs> that, so and, and um, you, you did, you, I read this. So I try not to read the press materials, but I okay. actually did <laughs> a little bit. And did it, it said you started writing when you were pregnant. Is that true? Or on maternity leave? Well, that, I wrote my first book on maternity leave, but I started writing when I was seven years old. So, oh, okay, yes. yeah. A lot, a lot of writers, I think, start off early, especially the the writers I know, around seven or eight, they knew they were storytellers. Uh, I think it's because we first have our we first find our facility with a pen and paper. Uh, we first yeah. learn how to write sentences and and spell halfway decently. Um, so that I wrote my first book when I was seven, but um, wow. I was raised in a, uh, my mother was an immigrant. My father was a, was a second generation immigrant. And for them, security was everything. 
And they said, being a novelist is not a way to make a living. You're never going to make a living at that. So, And, um, and for, the, for the most part, they are absolutely right. Yeah, for the most part, <laughs> absolutely true. So my father um, just, he suggested medicine. And I like science anyway. And that's how I became a doctor. I, I went to medical school, um, got my MD, um, and was in my residency training and then I got pregnant. Um, I, I was married, incidentally. <laughs> not, not then I get, you know, it would have been great if you said, and then I got pregnant by my instructor, by my professor who had this other marriage going on. I, and I, 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 should, I should probably add that. Uh, and, and then I went on a maternity leave for a couple of months. And luckily, my older son was a very good sleeper. He slept for two, three hours at a time. And that's when I would write. Wow. That is so cool. So how, do you feel like um, going to medical school, like kind of helped your writing uh, in a certain way? Like, were you, did it like shift how you told stories? It didn't at first. Uh, my first nine books were, were romantic thrillers. They had nothing to do with medicine. Um, but when I wrote my first medical thriller, which was Harvest, absolutely that medicine came into, that, that became really crucial to knowing how to write a medical thriller. Uh, and I've used it often in Rizzoli and Isles, of course, I use it because Dr. Isles is a medical examiner. Uh, so that really comes in handy. And in this book, Choose Me, there is an autopsy scene. There is some medicine involved. So I, I could draw on that. Um, and and it, it, was really, it was really useful that I was writing about medicine and Gary was writing about being a university professor because that is his day job. Uh, so we, we were bringing two different, completely different occupations and just writing about our own lives. That's fantastic. Does he teach uh, in the Boston area? Yeah, he teaches um, at Northeastern University. He is a professor of literature. Oh, fun. <laughs> like a character. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, so some of it, there are scenes in the classroom that, are, that, he, that he, knows, um, he knows very well how students behave in the classroom. He knows about backbiting. He knows about student jealousy. So, um, and he, and a lot of the characters are based on students he, or amalgamations of students he's taught. Interesting. Yeah, I when, when I also teach too, just at UCLA Extension. But when yeah. I when I come to the when I come to the class, I try to just get the baseline right away. We're all scumbags. We're all scumbag writers. We're at the we're we're, we're all on the same level of idiocy. Let's just enjoy this and try to get everyone on the same page. So there's no bad yeah. ideas. There's just conversations. You know. It's like, well, you know, I I still think even after thirty books, I think you know this this is kind of, I still feel like a hack. It's still a hack job. You're sitting down, you're there to tell a story and you do it any way you can, whether it involves booze or not. So yeah. Just, yeah. So just have a good time because it is a process. It is sometimes a difficult process. It's sometimes, it, it really is sometimes a harrowing process. And at the end of it, maybe you'll have a book and maybe that book will get published and maybe you'll, critics will hate it. And then you'll think, why did I write that story? So, you know, every step of the way when you, when you sit down as a writer, there are so many things that are against us. Um, so from, from the story itself to the characters resisting what you want them to do, to the publishing process, to the critics, to the readers who can be some, sometimes so horribly cruel. Um, yeah. yeah, and then you think at the end of it, why did I bother? <laughs> do, um, oh, this just, this just came up into my mind because I, I interviewed Lee Child about uh, six or seven months ago. And, um, is it Lee? Yeah, Lee, and he he said that uh, he's seen he's sat with he sat on airplanes 
where people were reading his book. And I'm like, you must have approached him. He's like, no, I never would. Cause it, he doesn't know where the conversation would go. Now, have no, you ever I, been in that situation where you saw someone reading one of your books? I would, I just don't because you don't, you know, you want to ask, how do you like that book? And they say, oh, it's crap. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. How going to feel right. So yeah. no, I don't, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm very happily pleased that somebody's I hopefully, hopefully paid money for that book. Right. Um, never ask how's it going you like that book because you don't want to hear the criticism it, it's hard we put so much of our hearts and souls into our stories and, and yeah. i know you you know how this feels you know how much sweat you put into that page every single sentence um and then for somebody to dismiss the book because they read it in two hours with something that you've labored over for a year two years three years yeah it's painful yeah it's, it, it's almost like sometimes, sometimes you feel like, you know, oh no, that book took me 40 years to write because it took all of that experience. Right. That's, this hours. is true. Every book is, is not just one or two years of labor. It's a whole lifetime of, of, of living. And, you know, I get asked sometimes by young people, what's the best education if I want to be a novelist? And I, I never say, oh, go get your MFA. I never say, go get a, you know, don't go to take writing courses. I, I just say, Read a lot of books and live an interesting life. Yes. Uh, Janet Fitch says, reading is breathing in, writing is breathing out. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Isn't that but good? I, I want to add living is yeah. important. You know, how could it, it, falling in love, that is so important to writing. Um, yeah. And, and, and breaking up and having a job. These are things that, that put us in touch with just the difficulty of, of being human being. I like that. And the, and, and falling and the, the idea, well, falling in love is so much vulnerability as well. And we kind of yeah. really have to be vulnerable as writers. We, it's that, that creates the emotional tensions that's happening even on, um, even on a level where sometimes I, sometimes I'll like watch a buddy cop movie, but in the end, what you really have to think of is those two, those two main characters, they're the romance, even if they have, you know, wives at home or whatever, the, the romance and push and pull has to happen between them and then we're connected. Yeah, right, right. The bro, the bromance. And, and that was what I, but that's actually, I mean, let's get back to the Komitsky method. Yeah. You need to rewatch season two and three. Okay. That's a bromance. That's a bromance. Really. It's, it's yeah. between Michael Douglas, right? And, and, and Alan, Alan Arkin, those two characters um, and what they've been through together. And even though they're like in their seventies now and toddling around and just barely making it over to, <laughs> to get their 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 martinis at the end of the day we we watch it because these two men in essence in a male point of male way love each other yeah they're just not they're just not having sex the only part of the intimacy is they're not having sex and the sex wouldn't even be the most intimate part there's even more intimacy with just right. them you you're absolutely right i mean we think of intimacy as physical but it's not it's it is it's allowing yourself to, um, to, to reveal yourself, to be vulnerable to each other. And that's, that is a very, very difficult thing to do with anybody. Yeah. All right. I'm going to watch season two and three. Thanks. Thanks for giving me something to spend my time on and days on. <laughs> I, it, I, I watch some of these shows and it blows my mind because I'll lose days. And then, and then I do this stupid thing. I go, well, this is research for my next project. I don't know if you ever think that when you're like 
doing something well, you, yeah. you know what <laughs> the trouble is tv is so immersive now and there's such, so much good television yeah. um and it's so well written it's beautifully written i mean i look at kominsky method or I look at this other show that i that i just finished the first season of hacks i don't know if you've seen that about an, an aging comedian and I need, oh that sounds good i need to watch it yeah no it's it is it's fantastic and um but it's only had one season uh so when I watch television shows, and you as a writer probably do the same thing. It's not just, we're not just looking at acting. We're also looking at who wrote that fabulous dialogue. Yeah. There was a writer there. There was a writer involved. And yet, um, I don't think we, the writers in, tele, in Hollywood get enough attention or praise. No, and then sometimes we look at the choice. Like, that's an interesting choice to have that character come in to have that conflict instead of the other character. It's, I, you know, I love just figuring out the scene and this oh it just i geek out on it so much that i should probably stop watching anything so i can get more work done uh, yeah well that's yeah, that's that's my reward at the end of the day is to watch some television show i've been streaming <laughs> yeah yeah what so um did so you did you grew up in san diego yeah and then what and then when did you decide to move to uh new england well, it's a long roundabout process. I, um, I went to medical school in San Francisco. Oh, you did? I, I, yeah. I, I'm from San Francisco. Oh, okay. So I was at UCSF. Okay. Nansutro, and I, um, I met my husband there. Uh, mm -hmm. We got married, moved to Hawaii because that's where his family uh, was living. Um, and I lived there 12 years and then I couldn't stand being on a rock anymore. It was just, you know, if you're not born on an island, it's tough to live on an island. So we went to Maine on vacation one summer and I loved it. And I said, I, we need to move here. So that's where I've been. I've been in, we've been in Maine now for, gosh, it's scary, 30 years. <laughs> wow. So you go from tropics to nor'easters. Right, exactly. <laughs> what exactly. was it like? And plus you're, you're a California uh, woman. How do you deal with winters? What was your first winter like when you were in... Um... Uh, it was magical. It was magical yeah. that to, to have our first snowstorm, to, to, to learn how, <laughs> well, we were kind of a disaster because we rented this 18, uh, 18, 19 farmhouse that was not insulated. Oh. Um, so we didn't really know what we were doing. And the funny thing is, we, so we get there, we, we're renting this farmhouse and it does not have a lock on the door, on the front door. Um, and we asked the owner, what about the front door and there's no lock on this front door and he goes it hasn't had a lock in a hundred something years why would it need one now so we were living in this house that had no no locks on the doors <laughs> and and that was that was our introduction to the innocence of what Maine was at least when we first moved here and yeah. it was incredibly charming um and this the winters you learn you just learn to power through those the kids learned to ski it was I think was what was magical. It's always magical. And then you're in California, but what's always magical is the first snowstorm of the season. And then a month later, it's horrible. <laughs> you're tired of it. <laughs> but the first snowstorm is always wonderful. And then there, and then there's the back end of that where you start to see the first bloom. Well, no, you you've left out a season there. That's okay. I mean, is mud season. <laughs> <laughs> And it does, does mud seasoning excite you because you're like, oh, we're getting no, closer. So mud, mud, mud season is where everybody reaches their low and they're, and they go to town meetings and they're ready to 
you know, they're ready to fight with each other, but it's, it comes between winter and there's mud season and where everything, as you, as you probably can hear, it's muddy. And then the first crocus comes out and then you're on to the next season. So what I love about Maine is the seasons are so distinct. Um, each one has its beauty. Um, some of them have their miseries, yeah. but always know that nothing will be the same. Uh, you, three months from now, everything will be different. And that's what I, um, I think I got tired of Southern California in that way, because things really don't change that much. I, yeah, even, I mean, even as a San Franciscan living in Los Angeles, you know, I, there's something where I just, I miss the crisp, I miss the crispness of, you know, winter days and- the, and oh, Yeah, San Francisco is beautiful. And the fog, the wind- Oh, the, the fog. fog. Yeah. I remember my last day when I was, this was about seven years ago, and I, I knew I was coming to LA and I was probably going to stay in LA. And I walked through the streets of San Francisco at like 5 a.m. and the fog was just bellowing in. And it was just such a melancholy moment because I was just like, I knew I knew I was leaving San Francisco. And at the same oh, time, it's yeah. just like, I'm going to, I'm leaving this. I'm just leaving this. And it's just like, yeah. oh. For the traffic of LA. Yeah. Well, I think what I've learned to do is just not do things during traffic. You know, you do meetings in certain times of the day where you don't have to get in traffic. Well, Zoom must be a real, a real blessing then for a, a, an Alano. Yeah, kind of bless, a blessing and a curse. I because well, when I was because I I usually teach on campus at UCLA, and then all of a sudden we had to go to Zoom, and which is beautiful because I get to now I get to have students from I, I had a student from South Korea in one of my last quarters, you know, and they're they're coming in at they're coming in tomorrow at two, and it's actually seven our time, you know, and it's just um that could never happen, but. There's just something about being in the room, just being in the room with people who are like, how do we get to the next step of becoming big time famous writers? Yeah, especially for writers. I can see that, especially for Hollywood writers, to be in the same room, to be in the writer's room um, yeah. and, and to be spitballing what happens in the next scene. Um, so yeah, there, yeah un unfortunately that has been lost. And the smell of fear. Just, I, fear? I, I miss the smell of fear. <laughs> Is that what you instill in your students? <laughs> no, there's that beautiful just like first week where they're, they're they're like looking at you and kind of sussing you out and going, okay, do we got to deal with this guy? And I'm no, I know I'm getting judged immediately, you know. And they're like, can we drop this class and take the other one? And um, oh. and I kind of come in and just go, hey, here's what's going to happen here, and you know. Some of you may need to leave and go to the other person. You're right, but if, if we're right, it's it's almost like um, it's almost like dating. If we're right for each other, then we can then we could do the next ten weeks and we can I don't get know. to I'm a song. I'm looking at you and I'm thinking I would stick with this guy. This, I mean, really? You look, you look like you'd <laughs> a lot of fun. You like you'd have a class and be just a lot of fun. It's probably the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's good fun. I mean, we just, we just started our summer quarter and I've been teaching, I'm teaching screenwriting now. So it's not as, uh, my love is the novel. I mean, the novel is always in my heart and then, but I do love screenwriting as well, but yeah. when it comes you to know, the end. It, sure. I, I, mean, I love screenwriting too. I, I think it's, it's, it's the novel um, distilled with all the other excess junk thrown out. Um, yeah. It's, it's right down to the emotions and the dialogue. And that's, that's the fun of, of, of writing for, for the screen. Yeah, and it's um, and what what's scary and beautiful is this screenplay is going to employ hundreds of people, 
and there's going to be a lot of hands all the way to the final cut. That's and, the problem. Yeah. And what I love about the novel is it's like our names on it. And if we screwed it up, we screwed it up. And if we did all right, we did all right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The, and that, that is the lovely thing about being a novelist is that you are the master of your own universe. Um, you don't have to deal with a lot of people saying, we need a car chase here. Oh no, take the car chase. Out. Oh, put the back in. You know, yeah. and this, um, a lot of all these other hands that come in and try to so-called fix the story. Right. Um, and you as a novelist, you, you can just brush that aside. Yeah. And you, you, we have to live and die by it. And so have you written, you've written screenplays too? Yeah. I mean, I, I did. Um, my first was made it actually made into a TV movie of the week way back in 93. Um, and then I did this with my, my son. Oh, right. And then the horror movie. What was the TV movie in 1993? Did you write the script first and then tried to sell it and it became a TV movie? I did. I, it, I, it was called Adrift. Um, I sold it. And then, of course, other people got their hands on it. So, yeah, it changed. It changed a lot between my 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 writing it and it becoming a TV movie. But my name is still on it. And um, what? And d when did you see the final cut of that? Did you have to wait for air or did you get to see a cut before? No, I didn't see a cut before. I saw it when it finally aired because I was, you know, it was filmed in New Zealand. Uh huh. So I was not going to go down there. <laughs> Right, and then I have a screenwriting partner, and um, we have we we have written a script that was apparently so well received that we have a television um, studio that is asking us to write another script for them cool. based on what we had really written. So um, I'm I'm enjoying, especially with screenwriting, I do enjoy collaboration. Yeah, I think it helps to have a collaborator with screenplays, not so much novels. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm collaborating with this, this, this wonderful screenwriter named Dan Rosen, who in his younger years was a stand-up comic. Um, oh, yeah. So, so when I need the funny line, I turn to him and he yeah. asks. Yeah. And stand-up comedians have such unique personalities. It's, it's they do. Yeah. I, if the culture of a stand-up comic is just, it's so, it's so, it just intrigues me on so many levels. It's the most scary thing I can imagine is getting it up in front of an audience and being a, and being a comic. I can't, I, I would never be able to do that. And being judged just constantly by- By silence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, there's nothing worse for a comic than silence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe uh, getting a limb chopped off with a chainsaw, but second would be silent. No, no. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't know. You're probably you're right. I think I think the chainsaw would be easier than uh, <laughs> silence. Um, yeah, that. So, how long have you been working with your uh, screenwriting partner? Um, only only during the pandemic. We started. Oh. I just I had just finished my other book, and then and he said, "Hey, let's." He said, "Let's let's do something together." And I had. I, first of all, um, I don't even know how much I can talk about this, but um, I have long been, a, I love what I call comfort crime. You know, these British, these British shows that go on forever for 30 years, and they're basically about murder, except it's murder with tea and biscuits. And <laughs> so in a way, it's, it's like Murder, She Wrote, which is yeah. our equivalent of murder with tea and biscuits. And yeah. I thought, I would love to do a a series like that set in Maine because Maine has Maine has this almost mythical quality of being um, I guess a wondrous a wonderland 
It's apart from the United States. It has it has its own mythology. Let's let's do something like that. And so that's that was the that was the screenplay we wrote together, and it got a lot of interest. And but it also was um, got enough interest so that one one te television studio is asking us to do something else. That's great. And what's it like to be a writer in Maine? Is there like a literary, like, is there a literary vibe? Do you get to go to the cafe and just be like, oh, hey. Uh, there are writers everywhere here. I, yeah. I, I know I know a lot of them. There's a, a mystery writer named Paul Dwaran who lives in our town. I see him hiking up the hill. I mean, whenever he goes bird watching and I go bird watching, so I see him. And then there are poets and there are, there are, um, Elizabeth Hand, who is a, a fantasy, a science fiction fantasy writer lives right up the street and so of course Stephen King and we have people in Portland, Maine and it's um people always ask me why do so many writers end up in Maine because I think well our chamber of commerce would tell us that we have more writers per capita in our state than any state in the country. I don't know what they're backing that up with but I think that probably is true mm -hmm. uh, but it has to do with the fact that writers if, if you have are halfway successful you can live anywhere. You yeah. can live, yeah, you, your, your job is portable and people who have a choice tend to live in beautiful places. Uh, and so that's how they end up in Maine. Huh, but that's at the same time, if there's, for me, if there's too much beauty, then I get sidetracked. Yeah, but there's long winters when you don't really want to go outside and then you work. Oh, okay. Do you tend to produce a lot more during winter? Yeah, I do, I do. Summertime, you're right. Summertime is tough because it is beautiful out here and there's the gardens and I'm outside a lot working in my garden. Um, so that is a distraction, but then we have very short summers. <laughs> so yeah. before you know it, it's wintertime and you don't wanna go out and there's snow and then there's mud and you might as well just stay inside and write your next book. And, well, and going back to moving to Maine, you and your husband made that decision yeah. To, and so he was cool with it too. You were both on board. How did that work? Was one of you a little more on board than the other? Uh, well, I think we both felt there was a need for a change. And he yeah. um, he's a doctor. Okay. <clears throat> so he opened up a practice here in Maine and he practiced for a number of years. And then he retired. When I, um, when I started to get successful, he thought, you know, we need, somebody needs to watch the kids. Yeah. <laughs> so he retired and I became the breadwinner and it's worked out great. And when did when was that move when you felt like you were you were becoming successful as a, a writer where you're like you know what I can take over? I think it was my first really big advance, and that was for the book Harvest, which was book number ten. Wow! And we realized okay, um, now we have we can now send our kids to college. <laughs> that is great. Don't answer yeah. this question if you don't want to. But what's what was the advance? Feel free to say no. Wrong question. Well, I, I, because I've talked about it, I will tell you. My, okay. my first big advance, and I could not believe it when it came in because, first of all, I had just switched literary. I, okay, I have to do a shout out to my fantastic literary agent. She was my third literary agent, and I sent her a partial of Harvest, which was, I think I sent her 100 pages or something, 120 pages. And she said, this is really good. I think we need to take it to auction. And I thought, what? I've never heard of this before. Um, and I said, do you think we could possibly make, and I named this amount that I thought was like outrageously great. I said, do you think we could possibly make $50,000 for this book? And she said, if all we get is $50,000, I'll shoot myself. 
<laughs> so that's when I realized my agent was was working on a completely different level than I imagined. Um, and when the offer came in, it was two books for a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. What and was that, that day? I, when when you when did you get the news? When like how, what was how did the how was the news presented to you? It was over the phone. Um, and and the way she, it was presented was, I think you need to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so when you hear that, you're like, oh, wait, nobody wants to buy it or this is going to be huge. She said, I think you need to sit down. And then I remember my husband's reaction when he heard this. He said, is she on the level? Are you sure? She yeah. <laughs> he said, are you sure she's not like a, like a, a, you know, a compulsive liar? And I, yeah, because we could, neither one of us could believe it. It was just wow. so much. Like, uh, and, and uh, as, as he's asking that when you're on the phone, you go, hold on a second. Quit your day job. We got this. <laughs> but, but here's the thing about writing, okay? You get this great deal and maybe it's a million dollar deal. Um, and you write that book and maybe it crashes. It doesn't do well. That is the last time you're going to see that much. Money. Yes, yes. Or it might be yeah. the last time you get published. Right. It, that's exactly right. It could be the last time you get published. So that's that's the thing about this this whole business. And it's true for Hollywood as well. You could you could be an actor, you have one great movie and then nobody wants to hire you because your movie yeah. crashed. So it's the same thing with books. Um, even though you may have a big success, it could be a one hit wonder. So um, there's nothing certain about this business. Uh, and you, you don't do it for the money. I've never done it for the money. You do it because you have this obsession with telling stories and you can't do anything else. Yeah, because you have to. If, if we're in it for the money, there's, there's a lot better careers. There is a lot. Yeah. There's a lot better careers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, but at the same time, it's a fun club to be in. It is a fun club to be in. You meet a lot of really interesting people. I love other writers. I think we're mm -hmm. all, you know, a lot of us are, um, we're introverts, but when you get us together, we kind of open up and we're yeah. comfortable with each other. And then yeah. we go back to our little caves and we don't want to be disturbed again. <laughs> yeah. Then we go back to Maine winters. Yes. Which I love. <laughs> thank you, Tess, for coming on the show. Well, thank you. This was, this was fun. And we talked about things I wasn't expecting to talk about, but it felt like we were in a bar, which is where we should have been. Tess Garrett's in on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Choose Me, with her co-author, Gary Braver. Join me next week when I chat with Sarah Moore Fitzgerald about her new YA book called all the money in the world. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.